Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. If you're new to the program, we, we've had we've added a lot of new listeners. I'm really grateful for that. Um, but if you're new and you dig what we're doing here, I have a huge favor to ask. Tell a friend about us. The easiest way to find us is at politicsandreligion.us. It's www.politicsandreligion.us. Then, of course, go into your app, give us a rating, a review. It really does help us keep going so that we can continue to have conversations like the one we're having today with Danielle Moody. Danielle is the host of Woke AF, where she explores the many facets of what it means to be woke in our modern life. Danielle also co-hosts Democracy-ish with Wajahat Ali, a podcast dedicated to fighting for democracy and preserving your sanity in a time when both are under active assault. The only problem I have with that show is this one guest they had on recently, but maybe we'll get into that later. <laughs> um, now, now, Danielle is never shy about shaking things up and calling out bullshit where she sees it. She has been an unapologetic commentator about America's racism problem a former and self-proclaimed recovering lobbyist turned media maven. Her opinions and cultural commentary have been published in a variety of outlets, including Daily Beast, Medium's Zora Magazine, Cosmo, Vogue, Essence, The Atlantic, Ebony, HuffPo, and others. She also makes frequent appearances on MSNBC, CBS, PBS, and BBC America. But today, Danielle <laughs> is joining us on TPNR. Danielle? Thank you so much for coming. And uh, how's your foot doing, by the way? Are you able to take your walks again? Oh, <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm super excited to be here. Um, and what did you just ask me about walks? Your foot. Is it your foot in a boot or something yes, like that? The boot has been lifted. <laughs> I just started after 10 weeks. Basically, I, you know, I broke my toe on, on Memorial Day weekend, which is a great time to have to be lugging around a boot for the entire summer. Wow. Um, but I am back in action slowly, but I'm back in action. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So I do have a serious question. Did you discover any great finds on your latest trip to wine country? Oh, I did. Um, I went to Scribe uh, Winery in Sonoma which was new to me. Um, I'd never been, and it is beautiful. I'm obsessed with plants, as you can see in the back here. Um, that was my pan. People were making sourdough bread during the pandemic. I was buying plants. So uh, Scribe was just filled with these beautiful plants. The vibe was just so wonderful. And they had this uh, Pinot, uh, like sparkling wine. It's just, it was, it was delightful. I mm. loved it. It was a well-needed break, even though 
poor California and their drought. Yeah, yeah. So we're mostly central coast people because that's driving distance for, for us. But my oldest kid is officially moving to Humboldt County. So if we drive up there, we're going to be driving through Sonoma. And what, but my favorite are like these micro little mom and pop vineyards, you know, like the 1200 vines. And oh man, I should have asked you for recommendations. Oh, well, I not me personally, but I know people. Okay. <laughs> so, All right. <laughs> yeah. No, one of our favorites is it's a little bit bigger now, uh, is a Central Coast one there near Paso called Cass, C A S S. And the best ones, like every quarter he puts out, it's like a, artist's pick it's like his way of his little potion that he mixes this wine this grape with that grape and you know just his his own little creations are my favorite ones they call it the meritage ah okay uh, yeah so actually i do bring that up for for a serious reason it, it seems you getting away seems to fit in with a larger focus on mental health and taking like real taking real breaks is just one part of that so i was curious what compelled you to start incorporating mental health into much of what you discuss on your podcast and in your writing? I'll tell you, Corey, because I felt like I was losing my mind. Um, I think that when your work is politics, right? Um, many people got into politics and policy, at least I did, because I really wanted to be a force for change. I really wanted to be a part um, what was the purpose of perfecting our union. And, you know, politics looks very different nowadays. It's very emotionally draining. It is, you know, filled with anxiety and panic about what breaking news alert your phone is buzzing and what is that going to be? Are, are we going to war? Is there an attack? Is there a mass shooting? Um, and so what I realized is that while my solo show, Woke AF, is really about bringing people into the forefront of current affairs and issues that they can actually participate in, that they can be a part of, right? Like the more that you know, the more activated you can become. At that same time, I started to realize for myself that the more time I was spending reading and watching the news, the more depressed I was honestly becoming, the more hopeless I was becoming. And I'm like, if this is my job, uh, which I do, you know, five, six, seven days a week, depending on if I'm doing TV or not, I need a counterbalance, right? And I felt that if I was offering, you know, 30 minutes of rage on my, uh, on my show, then I wanted people who listen to me, I don't want them to lose their minds. So I want them to understand um, that if you, you know, that it's okay to take breaks, right? That we don't need to honestly know every story at every time, that it is actually okay to take a break so that you don't have a breakdown. So that, you know, I tell people, take my podcast, go on a walk, you know, go ride a bike, like, you know, get some movement, you know, do it while you're gardening. But it is really important, I think now more than ever, with the compacted traumas that we're living through, multiple pandemics, you know, joblessness, climate change, um, all of these things uh, can really weigh on people. Uh, and I don't think that we pay enough attention to, to mental health and emotional well-being. It's funny because when you do talk about race and politics and cultural issues, I recognize the teacher in you. But when you talk about your mental health, that's I come from a family of teachers, so that's where I really see it come out. Uh, you have such an interesting tra trajectory, by the way, because you started out <laughs> I, in the classroom and I now did. you really are this this media maven. I was hoping that you could kind of walk us through a couple of those chapters, how sure. you got 
you know, from, you know, studying, uh, I think you studied, didn't you, you did politics undergrad, but then you did mm -hmm. the masters in ed, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Could you walk us through some of that? Yeah. You know, I, I realized it, it's funny because if you were to just look at my resume and I didn't tell anybody anything, they'd be like, what is this woman doing? You know, like what, like what, how do these things actually make sense? But for, for me at the core of my work has always been education. So um, yeah, I started in undergrad politics major, fell in love with politics when I was in uh, high school, taking AP government and politics and realized that I really education to me has always been something that has been important. I believe that it is the great bridge builder, that it is how people become economically mobile. It is how you break out of, you know, our caste system. We don't call it a caste system in the United States, but if you are born into poverty, the likelihood of you staying in poverty is really high, um, particularly because we know that unfortunately our public school systems are based on your income, your, your property taxes, right? And so to me, education, traditional education as in classroom education was where I wanted to start my career. So I went and uh, after I graduated, got a master's in early childhood education because I wanted to be a part of what it is to instill this idea of how important education should be in a young person's life. But I knew that I only wanted to be in the classroom for a few years um, because I really wanted to do education policy, which is how I transitioned from the classroom to Capitol Hill. And I was working for Congresswoman Yvette Clark who represents a district here in New York where I am. And, you know, during during that time, I was able to get to the Hill because of the Congressional Black Caucuses Fellowship Program. They take a select group of, of young Black leaders and, you know, and, and place them in different offices uh, across the House and the Senate. And, you know, during that time, I just realized how important, like how important education is. And I left the Congresswoman's office and I became um, one of the lobbyists for the New York's Federal Office of, um, office of Federal Affairs. And that was under Mike Bloomberg when he was mayor of New York City. Um, and so then, you know, I kind of bounced around in the world of lobbying. And when people hear lobbyists, they think of, you know, evil people doing bad things like the NRA, uh, you know, <laughs> but um, my work in lobbying was, you know, from working for the largest school district in the country, which is New York City, to then working for the National Wildlife Federation, where I was working on environmental education and wanting to get children out, you know, outdoors. This was at a time when uh, testing, right, on no child left behind policy under Bush became a huge deal. And so we were no longer doing recess. We were no longer doing field trips because they said that if those things didn't matter. It was about teaching to the test. And we know now that that couldn't be further from the truth. And so then my career began to, to build and progress through there. And how I ended up doing more commentary on television is um, the fight for marriage equality uh, and same-sex marriage. I, I'm no longer married at this time, but I was one of the first couples to be married. And at that time, there was not the law across the land, which is currently still uh, in place, but fingers, you know, yeah. you keep fingers crossed. The people who were talking about marriage equality at that time were white gay men who were just not invoking empathy in the way that needed that empathy needed to be invoked. And so, you know, it was really talking about how discriminatory LGBTQ policies adversely affect African-American, uh, African-American LGBTQ people and other BIPOC um, folks. And so that's kind of how the work began. And 
now I still see myself as an educator. I just use, you know, various platforms, whether it be podcasting or TikTok or other social media outlets as my classroom to educate people so that we all don't become hopeless and feel like we have no power. Right. And, and so I want people to feel a sense of rage because rage is, is an activator. And the more that they learn about what's being done, the more that they can fight to change it. So many questions now. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I just wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about a podcast I think you'll really like. It's called Preconceived. It's a show hosted by Zale Mednick that examines the preconceptions that shape how we view the world and challenges the paradigms by which we live our lives. On each episode of Preconceived, Zale talks to researchers, experts, and other luminaries to examine both our approach to major life choices, but also our perspectives on topics to which we may have been overly conditioned towards certain opinions. We think you'll especially enjoy episode 66, Unorthodox, Leaving Extremist Religion with Gene Steinberg, founder of Freedom. There are so many others that you can really dig into. There's episode 44 about helicopter parents, how to raise an adult with the former Stanford Dean. There's one about polyamory with a sociologist and an expert researcher on the topic. There's one about the malleability of human memory with a psychologist and a memory expert. There's so many others that you'll really appreciate and enjoy. So listen to Preconceived wherever you get your podcasts. So let me get to the anger in a second, but there's something unique about how conscious you are about your current vocation. It's something interesting about your work as a contributor across multiple mediums. Like you obviously have a message. You have you have a couple of lanes that you're focusing on. We've touched on a, a couple already, but the very fact that you're creating content across multiple platforms, from broadcast TV hits to um, op-eds in major publications, your podcasts, obviously, or even places like Instagram and TikTok, the very fact that you're offering up contributions across all these platforms in a way, how do I put it? It, it seems like that is the message in a way. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, I think that, you know, what's funny is that I want to meet people where they are, right? And so not everybody reads. Not everybody still watches, sits down and watches the news. Some people have, you know, two minutes to get their information in, which is why the TikToks and the Instagram reels of the world um, make sense, right? It's to me, it's how can I deliver this message in the most digestible way possible? and meet people where they are. And if you hear a lot, you know, obviously I'm a democratic strategist, but if you hear people, they say, Democrats don't know how to message, the democratic establishment doesn't know how to message, and they don't, right? Because they've been delivering uh, their information and their policies in the same way that they were in the 20th century, right? Things have changed. And so for me, I think that it's really important to remain intellectually nimble and creative. If you're looking to engage people in our democracy, 
right? Then how do you do that? Well, you can't just hit them one way. You have to go everywhere where people are. And there are, you know, all of the outlets and the places that you named, those are different demographics. Those are different age demographics, right? We often hear about young people um, not participating in government. Well, guess where young people are? They're on TikTok, TikTok. right? And <laughs> yeah. so, and guess, and guess where, you know, Demo the democratic establishment isn't? On TikTok, right? right? So, you know, I just want to be where the people are. So whatever, whatever platform becomes the next thing or is the next place, you will see some, some rendition uh, of me and the messaging that I provide there. Because as long as we look to find new ways to share content, I will be finding alternative ways to share the content I create. Well, one of the things I think that's so encouraging about your the totality of your work is that you are essentially creating an independent media platform, an independent media outlet, if you will. You know, looking back at at uh, after I became a Christian, I I I became sort of an alien in the evangelical world. Like I, I was a Christian, I bought the whole you know Jesus died and rose again kind of a thing, um, but the culture was very different than the philosophical theological premises that kind of brought me into the church in the first place. And one of my, one of the many frustrations that I've had over the years is that it seemed to me like good friends of mine who were otherwise intelligent only had like this one information source, you know, they obviously Fox news. And I felt like we couldn't get into a, a healthy conversation because it's almost like they memorized the talking points in the opening monologue of Sean Hannity or, you know, Tucker, whoever the, the guy of the of the hour was. So, you know, seeing someone like you as an independent media presence and really developing an entire platform, I think that's like that's one way to fight back against one of the greater ills of of what's happened in our culture. There's a reason why I'm independent as well. Um, and it's because I don't want other people, the cor corporate entities being able to dictate my voice, right? right? right. And to, to being, being able to tell me, you know, ooh, that's a little too harsh or no, you shouldn't say that about the Biden administration or the Trump administration or this place or that because we still want access. Because you have to understand that the cable news sphere is all about access, right? And so, um, for me, it's like people who come on 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 both of my shows are people who are real advocates for the truth. And when you know that television in a lot of ways is really about entertainment, regardless of if you're watching Fox or you're watching CNN or others, it's about entertainment and ratings. And I think that the ability to use these platforms on these social media platforms to kind of, yeah. I, and it's funny, Corey, I never thought about it as creating like my own little independent network until you just said it. But, you know, it is my way to kind of push back against traditional media and say, I'm gonna pop up wherever you are, right? You know, and, and, you, and you can have access to me in a way that you don't have access to a Rachel Maddow, that you don't have access you know, to the, the, the Tucker Carlson's of the world, God forbid. Um, <laughs> but that there, there is, there is this feeling 
you know, I had somebody send such a beautiful tweet the other um, this this morning to me that was just like, you know, if no one's told you today, like how much your voice matters, like I want to tell you that like I wake up with you are a part of my routine. I wake up with you. You keep me up to date on the things that I need to be angry about. And I'm just so grateful you know, for that. And I'm just like, thank you so much. Cause most days I think I'm yelling into a void. Mm. Yeah, so that's an interesting point because I was reading just this morning, I was reading a couple of your pieces on Zora on medium and I, my brain has a negative bias. So I read the comments cause I was interested. Oh my in, God. Why? Yeah. Okay. So that was my question. Really? I, I, there were some that were really edifying. Like there were some that were engaged and intelligent and thoughtful, but it's like those two or three that are just like, oh, it it just without the emphasis, uh, I want to get back to the mental health now, like without that emphasis on the mental health, it could literally ruin my day at the very least, if not my week, because I will grind on that. Like, how can someone think that, let alone say that, you know? So, so let me ask you this. So the mental health, how do you hold space for both your drive for change and and the well channeled energy of of rage you know but but also the beauty how do you how do you hold space more broadly like for for the heavy stuff that we're that I'm talking about as well as like that light and that hopefulness you know i will tell you that 2020 was a clarifying year for me in so many ways as it was for you know the the world um, as we were introduced to COVID-19 for the first time. So in that time when, you know, those of us who were not considered essential were given the privilege of being able to pause and could use that pause to really collect ourselves in a lot of ways, ask ourselves about how we want to live, how we want to really show up, because in a global pandemic, you start to realize very clearly that life is fleeting. Right. Uh, and and it's 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 not something it's something that comes across when we when we, you know, lose loved ones. Right. That feeling of impermanence. Right. But as an as a world, as a, as a global citizenry, we understood that. And so for me, during that time, my mother had also been diagnosed with a brain tumor. Literally, thank God it was benign and she's completely and totally recovered. But. I want to tell you that the the day that New York City shut down, my mother was released from the hospital after having brain surgery. And so my family was already together because we were preparing to help her rehabilitate. My sister at that time was living abroad. And so during that time, you know, as we're hunkered down and the world is on pause and we're helping our mother, you know, recover, I started to realize that. I was folk, I was on the hamster wheel of hell, Corey, just focused on everything that was wrong, just focused on always trying to grind, 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 hustle, 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 get the next TV hit, do the next thing. But to what end? I was literally burnt out, right? And you know, so I had the, the ability during that time to just start going on walks, to practice yoga, to start a meditation practice. My mother owns a yoga studio here in New York and is a yogi um, as well as, as my sister. And they've always told me, always tried to convince me to develop a meditation practice. And I'm like, man, nah, that's not for me. Well, 2020 happens and all of these unfortunate things happen on top of which I was also going through a divorce at the same time. 
So you want to talk about like compacted trauma. It was real. So I was like, if there's going to be a time to start meditating and going inward, it's going to be now. So for me, meditation, which I am still uh, very much in at least once a day, if not more, um, to just still my mind and, you know, and to really focus on what I'm grateful for. Yeah. Right. And, and really have developed a gratitude practice that I never had before. You know, I, I wasn't even proud of, of the achievements that I would make. It was just like things would happen and I would say, great, now what's next? Right. And that's not a way to, to bring light and beauty into your life. It's, it's actually the opposite. So that's how I began to really try and create some type of balance. But some days, you know, some weeks are better than others because this this country, this world is is crazy. Right. Yeah. So some some days I do a much better job at centering joy than I do other days. So it's interesting that you talk about that for. OK, biggest game changer of my life this year. I started meditating for the first time. And I don't know why, but in the past, I tried like two minute meditations, three minute meditations. And I was like squirrel brain. I just couldn't sit. And for some reason I did. Part of the reason is I don't think in the past I've tried guided meditations. Mm -hmm. So, Same. so now I went from three to five, I'm doing like 20 minute meditations. Some of it is that I think it's called the mindfulness app. Mm -hmm. um, somebody else turned me on to Tara Brock who releases uh, guided ones on our, on our podcast, but like I can palpably feel the, uh, what do you call it? Like the resting or homeostasis of my brain state is, is completely, I feel it different, you know? And it, and it shows up in like the way I, um, I had a little spat with uh, Miss Lisa, the, uh, my, my wife the other day. And um, I think that I probably would have dug my heels in because I, I was upset about something and I had, I was justified in being upset, but I, I lashed out in anger. And um, I think in the past, I would have had kind of like this narcissistic tendency to just continue to justify why I was upset. But I really, I tie it directly to that meditation where it, the, the practice, where it's like, the, there's this one thing and I'm, I'm so early into it. I'm only like three months into it, but this one thing called noting, like noting your thought. Oh, that's mm. interesting. You know, mm -hmm. and then assigning it like negative or positive or neutral or whatever. And it allowed me to not be occupied by my thought or, or yes. um, controlled by my, but it's like a thought and it's a thing and it passes. And you know what? I hurt my wife because I lashed out in anger and it was a much more productive exchange. It was a learning experience for me. Um, but I, I directly now yoga is a different thing. She's, she's uh, Lisa's getting a, um, she's actually going right now for her, her 200 hour certificate. Oh, wonderful. Like yeah. So I've never been into yoga because it's like the sitting thing and the whatever, but she has me, what is it called? Um, Hello Sunshine or something like that. The, okay. The, yeah. What is that called? Um, where you go down and you go. <laughs> sorry, like, sun salutation. There you go. Sun sal yeah. Yeah. Hello I was sunshine. like, wait, what is Hello Sunshine? <laughs> yeah, sorry. And I so that's it. so, okay. so interesting. And it really has, I, in, in a, just a concrete way has changed my, my thinking quite literally. Okay. So you talked about your mom, you talked about your sister. You, you, I've also heard you talk more like about the imperative of living in community, like specifically so that we can listen to others so we can understand how other people are managing. So I was curious how you find and, and uh, nurture community. Yeah. Again, I, I think that it is incredibly important as the times that we are living in 
are just so toxic to really seek out, you know, people who bring light into your life, right? People who are honestly working as tribes work, right? Which is to hold each other accountable, but hold each other up. And for me, you know, I just, I started to really take, uh, take into account, you know, why certain people were in my life, right? Was it because we were just work colleagues? And, you know, was it because of status? Was it because, you know, they're actual friends? I think that I have really good friends who tell me all the time that I use the word friend too liberally, right? That everybody can't be your friend. And they're right. Because what does friendship actually mean? What does it mean to create a community of people that hold each other accountable, but are also there and reliable? And so for me, it really is about you know, kind of doing a, a lightness and, and heaviness when you're mentioning certain people's names to yourself. Do you feel light or do you feel heavy or do you feel nothing? And then that was a way to kind of begin again, you know, the, the, the bright side of this horrible pandemic was a lot of clearing out of people who were just in my life you know, because they've been in my life for a long time, but not necessarily because they really added any type of true value. I think that people understood their families different during this time, having been cloistered together for so long, right? Issues coming up that people um, really pushed underneath the rug. And so for me, it was really taking a, a, a kind of internal poll of how the people that were in my life already were having me feel and how do I, and how does that contrast to how I want to feel, who I, who I am in the state of becoming? Um, and I think that the first step in community building is to see who is already inside your tent and are they there for the right reasons? You know, what is the intent there? And then once you begin to notice that, you can sense people's vibrations. I know that this may sound like, what is it, like woo, you know, woohoo, new age, but to me, I think that it's a really, important. You can sense good and bad energy. And then you need to be able to make a decision with yourself about what kind of energy you want to let into your space, let into your life. And so for me, that's what my community building, you know, how it began and, and what that process looks like. You know, some of what you talk about when you talk about community, when you talk about rest, it, it goes beyond just like the teacher and the way I think of it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it does sound pastoral if you will oh oh we're gonna go into the religion part. <laughs> it is politics and religion I so I, I was actually curious did you grow up in the church or did you have any no. kind of back no no so your your spiritual so your mom's a yoga teacher sister's a yoga teacher so your spiritual is really connected more that way uh meditation yeah. and um and community that's interesting yeah yeah. You know, I, I never, and I think that we discussed this on Democracy Issue, I might have brought it up. I, at a very young age, was going to church with my grandparents, as, as many people did. My mother had grown up in a, a Protestant household. Uh, but then for a little while, while my grandmother was setting up, my, my family is from Jamaica. So my grandparents came to the United States in 1970. So as my grandmother was setting up the family's move, my mother was living with her Pentecostal sister. And, you know, all of the no's, all of the don'ts, 
really weighed on her. And so when she then came to age to form her own family and have my sister um, and myself, religion was not something that she grounded us in or raised us in. My grandparents felt that it was in, you know, was it still important to them? My grandfather was a deacon, you know, at his church. My grandmother really helped out at their church. But I remember being 10 years old and saying to, you know, my mother, I don't want to do this anymore. It doesn't feel right. Right. And I'm 10. So I'm not, you know, articulating in the way that, I, you know, but I, I was always very verbose. So, I, you know, I told my mom, you know, can you convey to grandma and grandpa that, you know, I'm I think I'm going to stay home on Sundays. Right. Like if, you know, if that's OK. And so for me, organized religion has both its pros and its cons. I think its cons are about control. I think its cons are about um, the oppression of women, regardless of what uh, religion we are talking about. And I think that it is making your connection with God uh, something that has to be housed somewhere, as opposed to that is inside of you. And for me, my I would even say that my reconnection or my realignment with a higher power has been by virtue of understanding that I don't need to go someplace in order to feel connected to God. I don't need to read a certain text uh, in order to be feel like I am connected to God and the universe. It is really about that stillness, that silence, that gratitude and appreciation for life, right? Appreciation for people's existence and the existence um, of all that sustains us. Uh, and so for me, I've never ascribed to one text or the other, but more so see myself as a student of it all. Um, I'm not a negator. I have so many friends that are very devout in their own religion. And I love learning and I love asking, you know, and I love asking the questions about it. What makes me upset is how religion has been bastardized and weaponized in order to oppress and harm you know, which we're seeing right now in this country, right, with attacks against the LGBTQ community, attacks against, you know, Black people. It's always been, well, it's God's will, and, you know, they're going against God. Who do you, who are you to dictate? So that has always kind of been how I've reconciled that. Yeah. I was also curious, not just about the religious thing, but the politics. Did you, did you arrive at a certain way of looking at things or maybe even specific positions at a relatively, were you aware at a relative, like Tay, you described, you know, saying, I don't want to go to church when you're as early as 10 political issues. Were you clear on those or did you evolve and develop and are to be able to articulate your, uh, certain social and political positions? Was it something that came over time, like through a college seminar, somebody influential or. I will tell you that it was honestly my AP teacher in 12th grade was this very petite white woman who I still to this day believe was a communist, but would never tell us what her political <laughs> affiliation was. But, you know, I, I didn't even get it. You should, I didn't even get a great grade in the class. I think I might've, I think I might've gotten a C plus. And I remember saying to her, Ms. McCarthy, C plus, like I can talk most of these people like around the table. And she goes, a C plus in my class is an A plus in anybody else's class. But it was something that was so challenging and exciting about learning about our democracy and how voices and activists 
have shaped this country. And really, you know, it's it, like I think about it now, how naive, right? But I, I loved that naivete that allowed me to believe that I could go to Washington, D.C. and go and make a difference, right? That I could go and major in politics and get into these halls of power. And I did. And I do. Right. And so but it was that class of, you know, we, we did deep dives into democracy. We did deep dives into comparative government and looking at other governments around the world. And it excited me. It excited me. I'll never forget the first time that I, you know, th this is why the insurrection really hit me in uh, in the core of my being, because I remember how proud I felt riding up the escalators at the Capitol South and seeing the Capitol building pop up like one of those 3D picture books and feeling like, oh my God, I have arrived and I'm here. And so to have that feeling as a child of immigrants, as a, you know, a black queer woman in America to be in these halls, right, that were built by my enslaved ancestors, there is something that is filled with so much pride Right. And so to see that just defaced in such a vile way on January 6th really cut to the core of 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 what I believe to be possible about the continued responsibility of every generation to perfect this union, to try and perfect. That is the job that was the baton, that was the marathon. Um, and so the crisis uh, of the democracy that we're living in and this disruption that is happening um, is, is, is heartbreaking. Yeah, no, I, that, that's you're speaking to the heart of why why I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, I, I think there is something amiss, even in the way that we're talking to our relatives, our friends, our neighbors. There's something amiss that we're living in completely different realities that mm -hmm. that I don't know that folks could feel justified, you know, even going back to those comment sections like there's a level of dehumanizing someone that yep. is required in order to even say those words. You, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. I can't I can't quite get there like mm -hmm. I, that. It's hard for me there is a line somewhere and it's hard for me to understand. Like there's, I, I think we might've talked about this before, but there's some folks that I'm pretty far away from in terms of what they think and believe, but I can at least have a conversation with them. I can kind of gather how they got there um, and, and to begin to at least identify what some of those illusions that they're under for them to, um, I, I can't quite go so far as going to the Capitol and taking a dump on the, in the rotunda. Like that's just beyond me. I mean, but like God. being at the president's speech, oh, the ex-president, this disgraced ex-presidents, you know, because they truly believe the election was stolen. I yep. don't agree with them. I'm so far away from that, but can understand how they got there. So, yeah, there's but that's why I, that's why I'm having these conversations. You know, there's a there's a distinction. So some of your work, candidly, some of your work challenges me mm -hmm. and I won't say offends me. But if I'm catching myself, I'm catching myself getting defensive at times. Mm -hmm. And and it occurred to me that the work of a, a lobbyist is different than the work of a strategist. 
So there are times when you're talking in certain um, forums within which you're speaking that your job is, isn't necessarily to expand the tent, um, but to really advocate for a truth uh, for, or for a policy. So am I right to, to because uh, I've spoken to a few really great successful strategists and it's a different, they're always a strategist. They're always looking to expand that, that tent, looking for that extra one or two or 3%. Am I right to pick up on a distinction there or? Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. I, I think that lobbyists, right, are advocating for a particular cause, right? Strategists are looking at the big picture and figuring out how we make all of these different issues, ideas, policies, visions connect. It isn't about the people pleasing, but it's about how you are threading this very complicated needle, right? That, that, is, that is our democracy. And what does that look like when we only have a two-party system, right? And when one of the parties has become a, you know, a cult, it, it makes democracy incredibly unbalanced. But to your point about some of the things that I say or have written that make folks defensive, you know, I will tell you that my dad, who is um, my stepdad, is a white man uh, who helped raise me from the age of 10. And, you know, and it's still you know, raising me. I'm still his daughter. And he, you know, he listens to he listens to my shows and watches all of my videos. And, you know, he sometimes and I'm his daughter will feel like I'm attacking him because I talk about white, straight, hetero, you know, men. And he's just like, you know, not all, not all. And I said, if it's not you, then that's not who I'm talking about. Right. So let you know. But there's a lot of unpacking. Right. Because I want. I want people to ask themselves really hard questions and much in the same way that, you know, uh, I'll say you were talking about having a disagreement with your wife and how meditation has helped you recognize your thoughts instead of becoming your thoughts. I want people to recognize that there are systemic failures to recognize that there have been purposeful obstacles placed in people in the most vulnerable communities and populations ways so that they are part of a permanent underclass in this country. And if, that, if those systems were put in place in order to disadvantage some, the other side of that is that it was put in place to advantage others. How do you change systems if we don't acknowledge that? That's not to say that everyone who is white should walk around you know, apologetic, but let us all not walk around foolishly. Right. In believing that it is just hard work that has gotten folks to a certain place, because that is to assume then that other people don't work hard. And that is a lie. Right. right? And so, you know, I think that it is important for us to understand who we have deified in our society. Right. Who are, are the gatekeepers to all of, you know, to to all of these various industries? You know, this country celebrates wealth and celebrity. Right. And, and we think that they are the end all be all. And then we look and we say, oh, well, there's just a few few black people that you can point out or a few Latinx people that you can point out. Well, those should be the people that were celebrated the most because ain't nobody opened the door for them. Right. Their their paths are a lot more complicated. And I think that it is if we are trying to really create systems of equity 
and really understand what justice looks like, then we have to be honest. And honesty is not always comfortable, right? Honesty is not about, you know, our comfort. I, I talk in a way sometimes like a personal trainer that will say to people, you know, get comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? Because that's what the truth does, right? It, pro it provokes us to think differently so that we can act differently, right? Um, but if we choose to bury our heads in the sand, if we choose to become political ostriches, if we choose to negate reality as the Republican Party is doing right now, and believe that you can pull people back to a time when you were always at the top and there was no, no, no real provocation, right? And you could just stamp that out wherever it lay, then we're not challenging ourselves to be better. Then we are disrupting that democracy perfection marathon uh, that we are in and we're doing it not just by virtue of being like those Republicans, but we're doing it by virtue of just choosing to be ignorant, choosing to not participate, to not accept the reality that this country was not created for everyone to thrive. And so how do we change that? By beginning with the truth. Right, right. You know, I, I really want to thank you for allowing me to be in conversation with you um, because, because there Look, candidly, there are some things that I hear that I have an impulsive reaction against. You know, even, even like when I first heard the idea of reparations, it wasn't articulated well, but you can't read a book like Lisa Sharon Harper's book that I, I told you about before we started recording. And <clears throat> she tells the history of race in this country, but she tells it, she's a, she does his, actual academic history work, but she did the academic history work of her own family. You know, so... So when you get when you get to the end and she talks about she does, I don't know if she even uses the word reparations, but she's talking about something along those lines. It made sense to me like I was I was edified by the entire piece of work because she got me there or like my oldest kid goes by they them. The first time I heard the pronoun thing, I'm like, what? I get huh? I what? <laughs> you know, like but but she they see I'm not fluent in it yet, but <laughs> they they allowed me. Yes. That's okay. They gave me the grace to understand yeah. that it it didn't come it it sounded off key to my ears, but that's just to my untrained ears, right? But yeah. they Savannah allowed me to participate in a conversation with her so that I understood um, other constructs and that and that Savannah they were taking it back in a way, so mm -hmm. I, I understood that. And you being in conversation with me. I've had other experiences where, frankly, I, I felt more. It, it was more than excluded, and the expectation was for me to come in if I was in the room or at the virtual table with a flagellum in hand, pretending that I was descended from, you know, uh, white slave owners or something like that. I'm like, listen, y'all, like the the shade of my skin. If if you're taking that one data point and and crafting this entire narrative about me, I don't know if we can be in a conversation mm -hmm. because I have to pretend to be somebody I'm not. Mm -hmm. I have to pretend to be you know uh, someone who's who's not a generation removed from from people who are getting raped and our houses were being burned down and and our neighbors were being beheaded. I have to pretend that that's not my my story. That's not my and it is. You know, I, I think that that too is important because for me, I'm not telling people to leave their own stories behind them, right? And assume the identity of something that isn't true to them. 
What I am asking for, however, is to understand the story of the formation of this country, yes. right? And the role that racism and discrimination, homophobia, transphobia, Islamophobia, you know, anti-Semitism plays, right? And if we can't be honest about that, right? Because I don't want you, Corey, to apologize. I want the friggin' government to apologize, right? I want the way that, you know, Germany had the Nuremberg trials. America should have done that with former slave owners and those that tried to overthrow right our democracy with the civil with the civil war instead they made monuments to these people they named highways in high schools right they put them in statuary hall in the capitol building right and so we couldn't really have and still can't have a conversation about reparations but we can have a conversation about what Jewish people are owed by virtue of the Holocaust because they had a goddamn trial. They aired out the horrendous nature of what was done. In this country, we don't air out a goddamn thing. We hide it. Yeah. And so we can't have an honest conversation about what is owed because we don't know our history and we choose not to teach our history. And you can see what is happening now with the thousands of books that are being burned and or banned. Yeah, I was it something that you wrote? I was just reading about this librarian in Texas. It, it wasn't even about the banned books itself. It was just like this banner about banned books week and knowing the history of banning books. And she was take it to task over told you know it offends one of the one of the 700 students and you're gonna have to take that down you know so um meanwhile by the way my shirt today is banned books club <laughs> is, that, is it this week because i think i just maybe it was something that that you wrote that i saw but it was like is this really happening and but to your point it's like yes look you you actually you wrote a piece and it kind of intersects a couple of the different issues that we're talking about and uh, I got chills when I was reading the, the title of the article is from uh, last February. Whoopi Goldberg's misstep could have been a teachable moment if she wasn't silenced. Uh, one of the things that that really just jumped out at me. How can people be expected to just know when they aren't educated, when the art of conversation is instead replaced with cancel culture? How is anyone expected to grow? So, yeah. Um, did, did it take some folks by surprise that that's a nuanced take? Did it? You know? I, I, think, I think so. But I also, you know, I'm also a teacher. Right. And the fact is that <laughs> moving into text culture, right, moving into social media where we have likes and this that and the other thing, young people have no idea how to have conversations and the older generations have forgotten. Right. That conversations are there's a difference between conversation and debate. Debate is about being right. Conversation is about opening and expanding our minds. And if you make a mistake, right, which I believe that Whoopi Goldberg did, the opportunity was lost when you decided to suspend her. I'm like, they could have had a series. That whole week could have been a series of shows bringing on experts to unpack, right, what, it, what anti-Semitism is, what these issues are, why they are still ever present in this country, right? And around the globe. You don't just shut, I mean, there are times when you need to shut people down like the Trumps of the world, 
right? There are absolutely like the descent. There are times when you need to shut bigots down. But the fact is that I feel like we have lost what is actual bigotry, what is actual hate, and what are missteps. And just in the same way that you were talking about Savannah, you know, pronouns, right? And people being able to say that I want you to acknowledge me as this person, not who you perceive me to be, but who I am telling you that I am. And then folks being like, I'm not doing that. What? Right now you may stumble, but that doesn't mean that you don't care. It means that I need, I, I, as I am working to expand my knowledge and understanding of gender, of sexuality, of all of these things, I'm just asking for some grace, right? right? And not every misstep in that space is transphobia, you know, or hatred in any type of way. It is a learning, right? And we need to be able to discuss those nuances so that we can get to the next, the next step. And you don't do that by just cutting people off. Yeah. Yeah, you're kind of already answering one of the questions I had. And it's, is there room for someone like me to be an ally, even if I'm not entirely woke as fuck, as, as they say? <laughs> <laughs> like, if we have some disagreements, like there might be some certain policy issues where I, I still think it through and I come to a different conclusion, you know? Um, I, I don't know what that would be like. I mean, we could start to go through them, but I, I'm not really categorical about any particular position. But like when California was first raising the minimum wage, I wasn't against it in principle. I was just against it because the math wasn't taken into consideration. You mm -hmm. know, it was being it was being advocated for by people who never ran a business, didn't know some of the realities. Now, fortunately, we have a Democratic uh, um, candidate that's running for to replace Mike Garcia here that actually she worked with me on her small business committee when she was in the state assembly and actually worked some of that language in uh, like what, what I was talking about. Sorry, I'm going off the rabbit trail here on spe a specific issue. But my bigger question is, can someone like me be an ally at times, even if I'm not entirely, if I don't check all the boxes? Yeah, because the idea here is that what does allyship look like? It looks like, you know, being able to use either your body, your voice, and your privilege to be able to create space for people who are not often seen and or heard from, right? And so it doesn't mean that you have to be in total agreement, but it means that what you're saying is that these, these issues and these people who are raising these issues deserve your ears, yeah. right? And deserve your eyes. And so what can I do in order to help make that happen? Is that about sharing an article, sharing a video? Is that about going to a meeting and being a, a participant? Is that about making sure that if I'm seeing something that is happening that is bad, that, you know, that I am bearing witness to it, right? I think that allyship takes on a lot of forms, but it isn't, there isn't a formality that you have to uh, be a carbon copy of me in order to be woke. And that's why, you know, for me, you know, being woke is about being conscious to injustice, right? It isn't, you know, this, this bullshit thing that this has created a war on because God forbid we evolve, right? You know, and, and that's the thing, like what is being woke? It's being conscious and evolving with the times that we are in and working on being in an expansive community with one another, just because that community may not have been talked about or you know, placed in the constitution does not mean that they don't exist now, 
right? And so that we're, we just ignore that reality. Um, we need, and I say this often, to be intellectually nimble. And that looks like being in community with people and being allies when you, when you feel like you need to be. Yeah. So would you say that there are certain non-negotiables? You know, because I, listen, I've listened to a lot of your stuff. I was a fan before we even talked the first time. And, and I, I should tell you that you are a master at knowing there, there are times when you when you go to the point of um i want to call it instigating if it's instigating it's instig it makes me think right so it's not really instant there's another word for it but it's it's not um it, you don't cross a line into alienating i think you, there are times when it requires like kind of intellectually and and emotionally shaking people up a little bit but it always it, even those times when my first impulse was to to feel defensive it makes me think, um, but I, I still got to ask you the first question are, uh, let's say a, like a, just a rally, for example, just, just to give it a picture. Um, are there, are there certain non-negotiables of folks who hold certain positions or what have you that like, nah, nah, don't bother. Yeah. I am, um, I'm not going to negotiate or have a conversations with white supremacists. White supremacy is a non-negotiable for me. Um, misogyny is a non-negotiable for me. There are things, you know, it was funny. The other day, I don't know why, but there were old clips from the Oprah show back in the late 80s, early 90s. And if you remember, Oprah used to bring on Nazis and, and white supremacists on her show. This is when Phil Donahue was still around. So I'm really like showing my age right now. Um, <laughs> but she used, to, she used to bring, you know, these folks on as, as a way to really try and understand what the hell was, you know, what is going on with your mind to have such vehement hate for somebody just by virtue of them having more melanin than you, right? And I, I remember watching those as a kid and being like, why would you give these people airtime? Like in all honesty, like you're literally using your hour airtime to like to give them a platform. So for me, it's the reason why I don't go on Fox News. I, I'm I I just don't want to participate in fuckery, right? Um, <laughs> to me, white supremacy is like the original fuckery of it all. And so if that's the belief that you hold, then then th we're not going to be in conversation. So there are certain non-negotiables i yes. get that yeah, yeah yeah and and i i have to like i said before i have to there's a line somewhere i i don't know exactly where it is but i know who's across that line for me yeah there's a lot of folks that i think we could at least have a conversation with and again like what you were saying before about debate versus conversation because debate is a contest and it's a yep. transaction yep. whereas a conversation is a relationship mm -hmm. and i feel like if I'm in relationship, I got to fight in chance, so to speak. You, yeah. You know what I mean? And, and that's the thing too. And, and, but this, but this is, you know, who, who is an artist in this space? Donald Trump, right. Of creating such division that people don't even want to have conversation. It goes back to your point about dehumanization, yeah. right? If I can dehumanize who I am, who I view as my enemy, right then we can do whatever the hell that we want including defecate in the fucking capital right right, right. so 
the the idea is that if we were to actually bring the temperature to a place of just even simmering, then we would be able to have conversation because, you know, I will tell you this. I don't believe that every single person that showed up at that Stop the Steal rally is a is a member of the Proud Boys and is a member of those other vile white supremacist groups. Right. I do believe that some of them were duped and continue to be duped. Right. And why is that? Because of lack of education, because of just watching Fox News and allowing your brain to melt out of one side of your ear. Right. Because they're not in conversation with anybody like me or you. No, because we have been turned into the enemy. Right. Why would I be in conversation with my enemy? Why would I be in conversation with somebody who I'm being told wants to take away my guns and my Bible? Listen to those two things, right? Like, why would I be in conversation with those people? And so it's the perfect setup, right? Because if I can dehumanize these people, if I can separate them and make it an us versus them situation, then we don't got to be in conversation because we are in perpetual war. And that's why fascism and authoritarianism is literally breathing down the back of America's neck right now, because we aren't in conversation. It's the reason why Republicans and white supremacists saw Barack Obama as the ultimate threat, right? Because he was about bringing people together and there's nothing more dangerous, right? To our unequal systems than somebody that is recognizing that we have common ground. Yeah. Right. And so if, if you can eviscerate that in the way that Donald Trump did, then you can stay in power. Yeah. You know, it's it's one of the reasons I think that I keep on going back to certain Bible studies going back, you know, and I've been kicked out of a few Bible studies, you know, not, not I don't go there to shake You're not it up. going in there and dropping F-bombs, Corey. I hope not. Well, the pat the last uh, one of my pastors, I'm still friends with him. He wanted me to get involved in some ministry work. And I said, Dave, you got to know, I I don't just cuss. I curse. I'm from Jersey. So I curse. Uh, And the other thing is I like my whiskey and um, and I I like I like poker. So, you know, if if those if those are non-negotiables for you, like you can find somebody else. Right. He's like his response is perfect. He's like, ah, shit, you're going to be a pain in the ass, aren't you? (laughs) I'm like, all right, we can work together. Um, But uh, yeah, so. No, I keep on going to those Bible studies partly to get into the conversation because I don't have to bring up the argument. Like if we're reading the Bible, you, you don't have to like believe in the authority or the religious whatever of the, the Bible. But like just looking at it as as philosophy or literature, is it's, it's, it, it has you, you can open up practically any page of the Bible and it testifies against the words, char- actions and character of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, so it doesn't have to be me. But we could be reading the fruit of the spirit. I'm like, fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. How many of y'all voted for Donald Trump? You know, you know mm. what I mean? Like, I don't have to make the argument. I just have to ask the question or have to like, hey, the Bible is speaking to us. So that's why. And like I said, I've been kicked out of my share of, of Bible studies just because the Bible said something inconvenient, which which I kind of like. Sorry, you, you've uh, you've instigated me again yeah. in a positive way. <laughs> But, but but the fact of the matter is, right, that people cherry pick what they want from the Bible in order to be able to justify their own ideology, right? You know, you're talking about the same book that was also used to justify, justify the slavery of, of, of human beings. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is this is what God this is what God has wanted. What? Yeah. Right. So, you know, I, I think that it is important to for you in particular to be the person that shows up in those spaces and say, I know this. I know this book. Back yeah. and forward, 
right? Yeah. Like I can go verse for verse with you, right? And ask people, provoke the questions, not just what is being dictated to you, but what yeah. you honestly understand and are absorbing. Yeah, that's the word, not instigate, but provoke, provocative in a good way, in a healthy way, in an engaging way, in a relational way, and not in a, content- well, sometimes it is contentious though, but but I, I'm, st- I'm, I'm imperfect and that's why I'm doing the project. Uh, because I've failed so many times, but if I can win, you know, not, it's not even winning. It's just like progressing just a little bit. You know what I mean? Um, sorry. I kept you longer than I planned. So I have a couple more questions. One is, do you have any questions for me? When are we going to drink whiskey together? When oh, baby, let's gonna, do this when thing. When are you going to come to the East Coast so that we can do that? I don't yes. play poker. I don't even know how, <laughs> but I would be I would be open to that conversation, Corey. Okay, all right. So, what's your go-to, like whiskey-wise? What's your go-to? Angels Envy. Oh, uh, I love Angels Envy. Finished oh, you... in port barrel, so smooth. Love it. Yeah, yeah. I like Angels Envy. I do have the Rise. I'm kind of digging some of the Rise. Like Bullet Rise, just real accessible. Very good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The Buffalo Trace, you know, not expensive, but it's it's. Uh, easy drinking. There is another one. Oh, and now I see the bottle in my head and I refer to it as the ladies, <laughs> the ladies bourbon. Okay. Uh, if you, okay. The bottle has a long neck and it has like a, a really rounded, what is it? It begins with a W. Somebody's going to listen to this and be like, that's the bourbon I drink. Yeah. Um, but, oh my God, I can't think of the name of it. I, it'll it'll come to me, but it is it is so light, so drinkable, fantastic. All right, we'll have to look that up and put it in the show yeah. notes or something. Actually, I did. You just reminded me. I did have a question for you. So you asked your listeners on one of your shows last week. I think it was like the first one after you got back. What does living really look like to you? Yes. What is it? What is it to you? But I was also. I don't know if uh, if you got any cool answers from from some of your listeners on that. You know, it's really funny because. Again, I, I do, I get a lot of DMs from, from people and, and tweets. And one person had said that it looks like for them, you know, not marinating in, in misery. It looks like being intentional about the beauty that they seek out. That's what living looks like. It looks like recognizing somebody else said that I don't have to earn. I don't have to feel guilty about my time off. I don't have to, I don't have to feel guilty about, um, being quote unquote unproductive, right? Um, saying thank you, Danielle, because I'm about to go on vacation and I'm so worried about it while I'm gone. I said, we work, there are 52 weeks in a year and we only get two of them off and no one <laughs> takes them at a, in a group time. Nobody ever takes two weeks at one time. That would be crazy, yeah. right? And so, you know, some people were just saying that it it is about an intentional practice, that they have become really intentional about not just going through the motions. And and again, because of the disruption that COVID has had in our lives, for those of us in privileged spaces, I think that it has really disrupted how we were working and working was more important than us actually living. And we're working and we're grinding and we're making this money, but to what end? Because nobody is joyful. Right, right. That's where being mindfully grateful I can that is an exercise or a practice, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, because um, you have to take a moment and really think about, OK, what am I grateful? And those days when when my head is just all in the darkness, you know, um, 
that's when it's most important to do that gratefulness thing, you know? And that's when my mother says, if you can be grateful for nothing else, be grateful for your breath. Be grateful, be, be grateful for your breath. Because yeah. there, are, there are many a days um, where I, I could throw something at the television that is behind me, that I just want to go out on my patio and literally scream from my toes through, you know, <laughs> through my mouth. But then you have to be grateful for your breath. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, this is my last question before I get to how we can find you online. The two pictures uh, uh, I see behind you. Yeah. So one is Octavia Butler, brilliant sci-fi writer, passed away, I believe in 2006, wrote what I believe is pretty much the Bible, if you would say, about how to survive an apocalypse in her two series, uh, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents. Uh, and reading both of those kind of changed my life and trajectory on how I look at democracy and our compounded crises. She wrote it in 1993. It is science fiction. And if you were to open it now today, you would scream. You would want to put it in a fire. That's how accurate it is oh, about, wow. what, about what happens to America. And then the other one is James Baldwin. Oh, man. Awesome. Awesome. I, just, I, I hope this is not the end of our conversation, but just a pause until the next time we do get to hang out. Um, Please. This yeah. was so much fun. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. I was nervous. I like, cause you're like super smart and super informed and super everything all like, I, I just felt sometimes I just feel like I'm out of my league. So uh, I definitely do not think so, but thank you. I'll take, I'll take the compliment. Oh, so, okay. So how can we find you woke as fuck or woke AF? I should say politely <laughs> democracy ish. Yeah. So you you can find Democracy Ish and Woke AF wherever you get your podcast. So if that is iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, uh, any of any of those places, uh, I am very active on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at D two cents D E E T W O C E N T S, um, and I am newly on uh, TikTok as of a couple of months ago. Uh, and my handle there is Danielle Moody M O O D I E underscore. Awesome. A lot of good stuff, a lot of really thought provoking stuff. So I really appreciate your contribution. I mean, you are contributing just some great ingredients and um, not instigating, but provocative at times thoughts. <laughs> so I just really appreciate it. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, tell somebody, tell your aunt Tilly or your neighbor, Bob, or I don't know, your kid's tuba teacher or something. Uh, we're really easy to find. It's politicsandreligion.us politicsandreligion.us and of course we love it if you rated us and left a review or supported what we're doing here on Patreon patreon.com slash politics and religion now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week thank you for joining us today if you dig what we're doing here it is super easy to follow us you can go to our site politicsandreligion.us that's with the and spelled out A-N-D politicsandreligion.us and we're on all the socials at tp and r pod you know tp and r pod for talking politics and religion pod and here's a big way you can support us by becoming one of our patrons you can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on the kinds of questions we explore or just help us keep the lights on but mostly we really appreciate you giving us a listen so for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. 
We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Bye.